uh, when we give talks, there's always this bit of a dance, bit of a balance in the process of deciding what we're going to talk about because it's our job to share the Buddhist teachings with you and we're here practicing the Buddhist teachings. So of course we always want to be speaking about these, these liberating teachings and sometimes we present a certain topic because it seems timely for the group and it's the kind of topic you talk about on long retreat. And sometimes we present a certain topic because it's what's really most alive in our own lives or in our own hearts. And I'm talking about, about um, a topic tonight because it's just so alive for me in terms of my own practice and the, the teachings that continue to show themselves. And I'm going to be talking tonight about the basically the last three little stanzas of the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of body. And the last three parts, the last three instructions in, um, in the first foundation are ones that we don't talk about very much often on retreat. We've been speaking a lot about mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of breathing. We've given some instructions for a mindfulness uh, through the different activities during the day, mindfulness of the different postures. But we haven't talked about anatomical parts, <laughs> and we haven't talked about um, the elements, and we haven't talked about a corpse in decay or a mindfulness of death. And I'll, I'll share much more about this, but it's really the mindfulness of death, the Maranasati piece that is so fresh for me that I really want to speak with you about tonight. Many of you know the story of a, a woman named Kisa Gotami. She was actually spoken about in the, the Terragata, these beautiful, beautiful poems about and by the, the, early, the earliest Buddhist nuns, women. And Kisa Gotami had a had a dynamic life as a householder before she became a nun. She actually, she didn't only become a nun, she became an arhant, which is so, so inspiring. And many of you know her story, and her story is that she, this is from the commentaries, that, that she had a child who died. And I, I'm not a parent, but I can just imagine how, how devastating it might be to lose, to lose a child. And uh, she was so heartbroken. Uh, she didn't know what to do. And she wanted to try to r bring life back to, to her, her child. And she asked all these different people, you know, please, do you have any medicine that will revive my dear one? Do you, can you help me? Can you help this being in any way? And finally, somebody said, you know, lady, go talk to the Buddha. If anybody can help you, it would be that guy. And so she went to the Buddha told him her story, you know, really begged him to provide some sort of life-saving medicine for, for this child who had already died. And the Buddha said that um, before he would do that, he would need for her to bring to him a mustard seed, common, common spice in India now and at that time. He would need um, for her to bring to him a mustard seed that came from a home where no, nobody had died. And you can imagine what happened, right? She went from home to home to home. 
and asking for a mustard seed and and there was just a universal response. Every single person, um, you know, when, they, when she said, has anyone died in your family? Can you give me a mustard seed? Of course somebody in my family has died. I can't help you. And so the message sunk in for her. The message sunk in for her that, that death is universal. That uh, no, matter, no matter who she went to, this is this, this common shared aspect of the human experience. And... <laughs> She went and she left her child's body at a charnel ground and went straight to the Buddha and asked to become ordained. It's no surprise to me because when we reflect deeply on impermanence, both in terms of our momentary experience and in terms of our own lives, often there's a place of urgency that's touched in our practice, a kind of samvega. It, it deepens so much the way that we live. After, after her awakening, here, um, here are the words that were written about Kisa Gotami. I followed the noble eightfold path that goes to that which is without death. Nibbana is known firsthand. I have seen myself in the mirror of the Dhamma. Now I am someone with depravity's darts cut out, with burden laid down, who has done what needs to be done. The nun Kisagotami, her mind freed, said this. So it's just like ring down through the ages. It's like she's speaking that possibility to us. So in my own process, the, the truth for me is that I notice a little hesitation in talking about this topic tonight. Um, and I, I gave a talk on this topic at, at IMS this past fall. The reason that death is so alive for me is that I was with my mother this fall in her end-of-life process in just a few weeks after she died, I went to go teach uh, with Bonnie and others at, at part of the three-month course. And I was thinking about giving this talk, and I said to Joseph, I don't know, I don't want to upset the yogis. You know, they're getting so calm, and they're in these beautiful states, and I don't want to upset the yogis. And in his infinite wisdom, Joseph said to me, Aaron, if you can't talk about death here, where can you talk about it? <laughs> right? And it really hit home. So it's uh, one of the great gifts of, of Buddhist practice is that um, death continues to be brought to the forefront as a means of enriching the way we live, as a means of serving our, our liberation. And so in my process, which came up again <laughs> today about giving this talk, I, I just see the cultural conditioning at work. I see the conditioning at work in my own, in my own mind. Um, the dominant cultural, cultural message in this country is really such an enormous denial of impermanence, an enormous denial of aging, a, uh, you know, a way that the sights and the smells and the general messiness of what can happen in this human body is, is often kept 
very neatly tucked away. It's actually not neat. It's just hidden, hidden more than neatly tucked away. And I don't think that this uh, does us a favor, really. And there's, there's just such a fixation on being young and being attractive and being upwardly mobile and getting rid of all your wrinkles. It's a lot of pressure, you know? It's a lot of pressure when you look at the advertising and the messaging that comes our way. So, Bonnie mentioned in her talk the other night, you know, we're all in line. We're all in line for death. We don't know if we're at the beginning or in the middle or at the end of the line. You might have some sense, possibly depending on how old you are, but we really, we really never know the moment. A moment of death is uncertain. And uh, there's these five recollections that, are, that were given by the Buddha um, that many of you know, many of you practice, but just to bring them, bring them forward. These uh, recollections, I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. As I say this, just I, I invite you to land in this, that, that this is true for every person in this room. I am subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. I will be parted from all things dear to me. That's inevitable for us in this life. And the last recollection is really one of karma and, and that points toward the, the practice of equanimity, that I am the owner of my actions and heir to my actions. And so just uh, taking a bit of time with these recollections can be really helpful. I don't recommend that you spend a lot of time thinking about them, but just sometimes taking a moment to drop in one of these recollections can be, can be quite useful. Working with um, understanding, you know, what are really some of the heavenly messengers, sickness, old age, and death, um, it, it's valuable to work with these, these unavoidable truths over time because often, you know, everybody in this room, I'm not saying anything new in terms of your cognitive mind. You know this stuff cognitively. It's not really a surprise. But it takes time for these deeper truths to sink into our bones, to move from a superficial understanding into really a lived understanding, to really have a relationship with these truths. So many of you that I've, that I've spoken with in the interviews, when, when I asked you a little bit about what brought you on this retreat, so many of you responded that some part of what brought you to be here, this is a huge practice commitment, a month or two of your life. Some of what brought you to be here had something to do with awareness of one of these recollections. Awareness of um, changes in your own body, aging. Awareness that you're not going to live forever and you want to um, cultivate wisdom, compassion during your time here. This is something... Um, as our eyes open there can be the sense of um, really knowing, knowing what matters. 
So, Buddha, Buddha Gosa, who wrote the Vasudhimaga, he, he says that there are two of 40 meditations that are always beneficial. Mindfulness of death and metta. It's interesting that we don't teach mindfulness of death more often, and I, I can kind of get it if you are going to a day long, what would you rather go to, you know? Loving kindness or mindfulness of death, you know? But, um, but it's just it's really, really important and rich, and I want to talk a little bit about the first foundation and uh, the elements and the parts of the body and then, and then more, more about death. So... The first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of body, is, is a, it's a whole gateway in and of itself. You know, that within this fathom-long body is all that's needed um, for our own liberation. And um, the body is such a source of attachment and such a source of mis- misunderstanding. You know, maybe like me, you ask or have asked the questions of, you know, this thing, do I have a body? Am I in my body? Am I my body? You know, and this, this sense that we can want to be both um, grati- wanting to gratify the body, the body wants what it wants, and then at the same time wanting to like, transcend the body. It can just be a lot of simultaneous attachment and avoidance with regard to um, our relationship to this phenomena, this phenomena of body. And the Buddha invites us to really um, come, really to touch directly, you know, you're doing this in your practice, this river of sensations that we call, that we call body. And he, he invites us to really know all these different parts, so to speak, that make up some of our physical existence. So I'd like to share with you a few of the parts. It's not a comprehensive list, but um, in the language of this time, in this body, there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, Kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, bowels, mesentery, contents of the stomach, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, and urine. If you've got a Vipassana romance going on, maybe that'll help you a little bit. It's like, whoa, okay, that's one way of looking at it. Um, but it's really interesting when we take a deeper, a deeper look, because this is right in the Satipatthana Sutta. This is actually to be practiced. And the list is starting with a, um, a more, the more solid outer parts going more and more internally into... Um, you know, it takes a subtler awareness to be aware of the, you know, the mesentery, for example, often, than to be aware of the teeth, for example. There's actually, the, the sequence there is, is um, 
is deliberate. And one way that the Buddha taught is by breaking up things into their constituent parts. Uh, because as we, as we look at the parts or the phenomena that comprise a concept or an object, we begin to see relationship. We begin to see relationship at work. And when we see relationship, we are heading straight into the heart of emptiness, straight into understanding the truth of, of um, our interconnectedness in life, our interdependence. So it's interesting if you take this body, which is often called, you know, in the discourse as a lump of flesh. It's one, one way of looking at the body. If you consider this, this body, it's like, who are you with regard to your body? Are you your youth? Are you your body when your body's functioning optimally? Are you your body when it's functioning least optimally? Are you your sexual organs? Are you your ability to walk? It's just, it's interesting because everything is changing all the time. And these bodies are going to go right back into the ground eventually. It's like, where's the me? Where, what, what, what part here is Aaron exactly? There's more bacteria in your gut right now than people who have ever lived on the planet. This is from, uh, from Lewis Thomas from Lives of a Cell. A good case can be made for our non-existence as entities. We are not made up as we always had supposed of successively enriched packets of our own parts. We're shared we're rented, we're occupied. At the interior of our cells, driving them, providing the oxidative energy that sends us out for the improvement of each shining day are the mitochondria. And in a strict sense, they are not ours. They turn out to be little separate creatures, the colonial posterity of migrant prokaryotes, probably primitive bacteria that swam into ancestral precursors of our cells and stayed there. Ever since, they have maintained themselves in their own ways, replicating in their own fashion, privately, with their own RNA and DNA quite different from our own. Without them, we would not move a muscle, we would not drum a finger or think a thought. He says, mitochondria are stable and responsible lodgers, and I choose to trust them. And then he, he writes, um, I like to think that they work in my interest, um, that each breath they draw for me, perhaps, I, I like to think that they work in my interest, that each breath they draw for me, but perhaps it is they who walk through the local park in the early morning, sensing my senses, listening to my music, thinking my thoughts. I appreciate the, the, the shift in perception. If we were to uh, remember our mitochondria, the mitochondria, in that way. And as I speak about body, 
I want to be really clear, uh, for me, the body has been and continues to be such a, a deep gateway that our, our realization is lived right here in this body. We touch the deathless through this body. One Buddhist saint, saint wrote, within my body are all the sacred places of the world and the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. So a spirit of uh, deep care, deep reverence is for me what's been much more helpful than a spirit of loathing the body or um, reducing in some way. Really a deep uh, care is a sacred site. So I'd like to say a little bit about the um, this second part of the end of the first foundation, which is this this teaching on the elements. And some of you are really quite familiar with the elements, but the elements of earth and water and fire and air are talked about in different ways in the instructions. And the earth element is just being very brief here, but it's because the sense of solidity of of if you feel the pressure of your seat on the chair or the cushion, that's, that's the earth element. When you're walking and your foot hits the ground, that's the earth element. Um, water, it's pretty sense of cohesion and liquidity. Water just means you are blinking little, little bits as you feel the moisture on your tongue and your mouth the fluid that keeps the joints moving. And um, fire has to do with, with temperature, like the, the heat that it takes to digest our food. Um, and the way just temperature changes. And air has to do with motion. You know, we know air quite intimately through the process of of breathing and through the, the process of circulation, the lymph system and the heart circulating fluid through, through the body. And, and the purpose of considering and knowing about the elements is really, it just continually points, points this human experience as being one of nature. The elements are within us, the elements are around us, we do not exist independently from the elements ever. So, corpse and decay, which, which is uh, practiced really in these charnel ground meditations. I think how different it would be for you if, I mean, would you have paid the money to go practice? You know, we're here, Spirit Rock, Sometimes we joke about the upper middle path here. And um, would you have gone to practice and signed up to go spend a month in a charnel ground? I don't know. But um, the charnel ground meditations are a very real part of this tradition. And I think that, that, that this one reason this may be so, I think they were supposed to be impactful. It would be impactful 
to be sitting and practicing with the smells and the sights and the tastes and the sounds of, of a charnel ground. And in India, in ancient India, from what I understand, you know, corpses were, they, corpses would be taken to charnel grounds to be burned. But if the relatives of the person who had died didn't have the money to pay for the corpse to be burned, it might really sit there for a long time. So the Buddha uh, understood the heavenly messenger of death in the way he encouraged his, uh, his bhikkhus and bhikkhunis to practice. And I'm going to share a little bit about kind of my personal charnel ground meditation from this fall. And I want to acknowledge that many of you, there's many people in this room who have sat deeply with uh, beings in the dying process who work with hospice and have um, tended to loved ones or maybe people you don't even, you haven't even known uh, through the profound passage, you know, into, into the great beyond. So I mentioned in my last talk that I was with a loved one who, who was dying this fall and that, yeah, that, that person was my dearly beloved mother, Chris, Chris Rogers. She, um, passed away in September, and she died of a aggressive and quite rare form of endometrial cancer. The way that her cancer unfolded was kind of the 0.01%. It was quite, um, quite unusual, actually. And my mother lived in Fargo, North Dakota, which is where I spent the first 18 years of my life, Fargo like the movie. And so even when things are, you know, challenging and rough in Fargo, there's, you know, what people would do is knowing, knowing that my mother was dying and I was there, they would bring over food. And I cannot tell you, we'd get these bags of 40 hamburger buns, 40 white hamburger buns. <laughs> it's like, are we going to have a barbecue when mom's dying? I don't think so. It's just, you know, we got all these salads, but they, none of them were green. We got marshmallow salad and jello salad we got raisin, raisin salad, Cool Whip salad. <laughs> it's just remarkable. So I actually started at a certain point, like this food would be coming in, and I just started secretly taking it out to the trash because I knew it was just we couldn't possibly eat all of that kind of food. And, um, and so those of you who have spent time with the dying may know how it is to be and what Stephen Levine, who has, who has just recently passed on, he was a, a great influential teacher to so many of us, many of you, and really uh, spent time here, that um, Stephen Levine left us with many things. One, one of the many things is with um, this, fee- this term that he coined, the death field. And if you spent time with the dying, you, you know how it is to be in, a, in the death field, which can feel like an altered state in a certain way. I don't know that it's altered for me. I actually think it's much nearer to the truth. I think being outside of the death field is more of the altered state. Um, but I am so still in the death field. It doesn't just go away when someone dies, and it's, it's interesting for me because I, 
you know, it's nothing I'm holding on to or creating, but it's also nothing that I'm in a rush to have disappear. Um, I'm very interested in in this experience because what I notice is that I'm I'm not the same person that I was before going through this journey with my mother. In some ways, we're always changing, but just the the depth at which I have been touched and moved is um it's unlike anything else in my life in my life so far because being with my mother in this process you know my mother i mean we have the same face shape we have the same very much the same physical shape and you know being with her face to face literally it was like looking the three characteristics in the face it was like um just knowing that there's nothing more final and nothing more real really than this irreversible process of nature than death so of course it brought me face to face with my own mortality not just as an idea but in watching the process um of of someone who looks so much like me coming to the end of their life So part of the the contemplation of death, the recollection, the opportunity is is that, for me it's not just death, this happens I think around death and birth, there's a time of a passage, there's a time of a a sense of um, the kind of openness and tenderness that are available to us as human beings, but that in our daily lives get, get covered over because of our ideas about who we are. You know that, right? That feeling of when kind of the veils part and there's a sense of, oh, we, we wake up to the preciousness. We wake up to, um, to the connectedness. Because we all belong. We belong to this shared trajectory of life and of death. And these bodies know how to be born and these bodies know how to die. And what's so beautiful is that with this practice of mindfulness, we don't have to wait for some big life experience or being with somebody who's dying to connect with the fruits that come from um, being willing to get close, being willing to get close with with our own with our own death with impermanence with a place that's not driven by personality view this is a few words from Kathleen Dowling Singh who wrote this wonderful book the grace in dying this is not just about death it's also about terminal illness and she says With terminal illness, the dying process, the one seat, chooses us. Dying picks the pillow for us. Terminal illness, in effect, reverses the momentum of our lives. We've lived for so long believing that we had to have what we desire in order to do as we desire, 
so we can think what we desire so as to enable us to be what we desire. Terminal illness, which goes against every desire of the mental ego, takes away anything that in the past or the future we might have. It brings an end to our ability to do, throwing into chaos our ability to think in our accustomed and familiar ways and forcing us to be. Terminal illness demands of us, don't just do something, sit there. Don't just do something, sit there, which is some of why um, what we're doing here is such a beautiful, profound practice in terms of preparing for that inevitable moment. In the process of dying, at least um, when there's a more extended process, that can, like the kind that can happen with terminal illness, a process of going inward very, very deeply. We're practicing some of that here. As I talk about the, some of the experiences um, with, with being with my mother, I just want to say just how, um, how terrifying even this topic can be to, to the ego. It's really not good news to the ego. And uh, I don't even think our, our conceptual minds can even really make sense of it. I, um, I'll say more about that. But um, I think part of why it's so terrifying to the part of us that wants to be in charge is that so much of what may happen is, is not up to us at all. Um, in my in the process of being with my mother dying, I just I saw karma at work so clearly. It was it was palpable. There were, um, I it was an enormously difficult experience for me in many ways. It was also an enormously beautiful experience, and the 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 actual death of my mother her not being alive in a human form anymore, that's not really what was the hardest part. The hardest part was just um, some of the suffering that was part of it and some of the complicated family dynamics that um, unfolded. I have a complicated family. And um, what I really saw was that um, the body was doing what it was going to do. And just about everything that happened in that month um, had been put into place really, really some time before. And it was my job to show up with presence and with love, but I just saw so clearly how the karmic momentum was unfolding, and that trumped everything. It didn't matter exactly what I wanted or how I thought things should be happening. It was the karmic momentum that was already at work, and so this, this sense of like, letting go into that deeply. So my mother was diagnosed with cancer in in June of 2013. And she had a hysterectomy. And she had, I think, four, four or six rounds of chemo. And it appeared that she was completely free, free from the cancer. It seemed over. Life went on as usual. And just last, last, well, last October, um, a year ago, last October, 
the cancer came back. It was this big tumor um, in the center of her femur, which is a really unusual unfolding of, of the kind of cancer she had. And at the end of June, she was given six to nine months to live. She lived about three months. And she entered hospice in, in June. And so much changed when she got the diagnosis in October and then again when she realized just how terminal the diagnosis was in June. And um, my mother and my relationship had been a quite complicated one over the years. And, you know, we were, we loved each other and we were in touch, but, you know, mothers and daughters, you know how it can be in families. And immediately, you know, once, once my mother woke up to, once we both woke up to the fact that there was only one way this was going to go sooner rather than later, there's just this absolute, um, knowing that there wasn't time to sweat the, to sweat the small stuff. Um, my mother tenderized. I, I saw her heart just flower. She became the kind of mother who would just, she's so sweet, she would just kiss me on the lips and say, I love you, sweetheart. And that was new for her. That was new for her. And um, it's just one of the gifts of once she really realized she was dying, the heart opened, and we, we don't have to wait to um, get that kind of diagnosis to open the heart to one another. Um, it was so, so incredible because the space between my mother and I was just, it was so clear. It was unobstructed, unimpeded. There was, there was nothing in the way um, there was so much love. And I, I really know that's because of the Dhamma. There's words by Rumi really describe how I felt with her in the last year and especially the last month of her life. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lays down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. So that was uh, probably the greatest gift in the process is that uh, there was a space of um, non-separation with her and it was just probably in large part because we just spent a lot of time in quiet together and in presence together. And again, that was something we never did um, before my mom got sick. We were always going out and you know, doing stuff, doing a lot of stuff. And just this intimacy of sitting in presence together, treatment after treatment, day after day, month after month. Delusion. I can't talk about death without talking about delusion. I was out at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies in, in um, August with Bonnie and with John and with Guy and with some others, and my mother kept calling me. And, you know, normally when I'm in a training or in that sort of environment, I just put my phone away, but of course I, I, I knew how sick she was. And um, I answered my phone, and she was calling me many, many times a day. And she, she was afraid because she couldn't put on her shirt 
And that, that was new for her to not be able to put on her shirt. And um, the family story was that it was a side effect of her medication that wasn't the side effect of her medication. The, the cancer had gone to her brain. And her hand stopped working. She, she couldn't even ring a bell anymore. She couldn't control her hand. And um, she called me, and there was one time I was sitting out in the garden at BCBS, and my mom just said, um, she said, Erin, would you come and be with me? She said, I am afraid, and you are the one person who can talk me down from my fear. And um, it meant so much to me that my mother could say she was afraid and that she um, would invite me to be with her in that space. And it's something where when I reflect upon my own life, you know, and this may be true for you too, I think sometimes, oh, geez, I'm, you know, living on Donna and I'm traveling and teaching and I spent all this time on retreat Um, It's just not like a really normal (laughs) grown-up life in some ways. But when I really uh, was asked to be there for my mother in this way and could be there for my mother in this way, that absolutely would not be true if it wasn't for the Dhamma practice in my life. So in just in being able to offer um, the kind of presence to my mother that she was so hungry for is just... Um, such, I know that that practice is such deeply a good use of this life. The mercy of the understanding that comes from this practice and um, not just for ourselves, but our capacity to carry this, this together. So I felt like she wanted me to come as her daughter, but she also wanted the Dhamma. I really know that. And so she asked me to come and she'd said on the phone to me, she said, don't tell anybody this, but I, uh, I don't think this can happen fast enough. And I, I knew then that she was losing her will to live. And, and so the family said, though, it wouldn't be a good time to come because they were going to go camping that weekend and they were moving some furniture. I mean, for real. <laughs> Delusion, Delusion, right? <laughs> And um, everybody was telling my mother that she wasn't as bad off as she thought and to be optimistic. And, you know, I just saw how it was for her because my mom was not in denial, but the system was. And I wonder how it would have been for her if she had been surrounded by practitioners who had practiced with impermanence and had been able to really um, sit with her in that way. So... Again, I'm talking about my own, my own experience here, but I, I mean this in a kind of walking you through this part of the first foundation, this kind of charnel ground meditation. I think I'm going to talk a little bit about what happened with the body, with the body, with the elements of the body. Because in uh, the process of, of dying, there's a dissolution. And the Tibetans teach us well of, of, the, of the elements. And, you know, my mother was, she died at home and was on morphine, which is its own trip. It's not just the death field. It's being really close to somebody who's tripping out on morphine. And uh, 
as her faculties became less and less, she was, she was increasingly sensitive to presences. She, could, she would feel and respond to certain presences in the room and would come out and speak when something was really important to her, but other than that, she really didn't. And so the earth element, the earth element of these, these bones and tissues, my mother um, had a body that li- not only liked to move, it liked to move quickly. She was always on the go. She was a fast walker. She drove fast. She was just, she moved quickly. And um, in this process at the end of life, in terms of the earth element, you know, she was laying in the hospital bed and she was absolutely unable to move. There was a quality of heaviness in the tissues that, that was palpable to me. It wasn't just like seeing it. It was like, it was like, um, it was the, en- the energy of it. Um, this heaviness where my mother's legs really became like earth. It felt like earth in that way. And her body became so heavy, um, smaller, much smaller, but much heavier. And her heart was having to work so hard to keep going that every time the heart would beat toward the end, I could, her, her skull would move up and down a little bit and her sternum would move up and down a little bit. You know, like as we sit here, I don't see your, your heads or your sternums moving, but that's what happens. That's what happens as the, as the earth element um, dissolves. And the fire, the fire element, as, um, as the fire element moved through the, the centers in her brain that controlled temperature started uh, not working and shutting down. So she would get really cold, like really cold to the touch. And then she'd break out, the body would break out in a sweat and a, and a fever. And um, the, with the fire element, the throat, the throat became really sticky. Her mouth became sticky. And with the water element, the mouth became uh, very dry and the joints weren't lubricated anymore. You know, so moving even a millimeter was a big deal and actually quite painful because there was not much joint fluid happening anymore. And the air element, breath. When I, when I got there, this was three and a half weeks before she died, there were already very long pauses between her breaths. And at the end of the last uh, probably 10 days of her life, there were these 30 to, to 45 second pauses, which doesn't sound like a long time, but it's a hell of a long time when you're waiting for the next breath to come. And uh, I would sit there with her, you know, day after day, hour after hour, just you know, wondering... Is this, is this the last breath? It's just, it brought me so into the moment with her. And um, one morning, it was just the two of us. And there were two breaths with these little, little sounds, almost like a gasp, but just little sounds. And then there was a third breath. And then there wasn't another in-breath. And I waited. And I was just there, you know, as wholeheartedly. And there wasn't another in-breath. It was a, um, a great, great gift to be with her uh, throughout that time and also um, 
for her last breath, quite literally. And after her last breath, you know, if it was all my way, there'd be all this ceremony and ritual and not disrupting the body. But um, we washed my mother's body. It was, it was so um, important for me to be part of washing the body. And at that point, it was, the, well, the, it was, really, it was really just the body. At that point, um, it was really just the body. And, and now part of my mother's body is, you know, I have her ashes. And there's, in the ashes, there's chips of bones. There's chips of teeth. Was, you know, the parts of the body, the elements, the change. So, as my mother was, um, was dying, there was a radiance. There was this incredible radiance. You know, these are hospice people from Fargo. And different people would come in and comment on the radiance. It was, it was striking. It was quite striking. And Frank, um, I actually don't know how to pronounce his last name. James does probably. He teaches here. Ostesky. He writes, uh, when I'm holding the hand of someone very old or of a dying patient, I notice that their skin is almost transparent and it's as if their being becomes that way as well. It's as if the wind could blow right through them and there isn't much that's obscuring who they actually are. In the aging process, we can't sustain the energy that's required to maintain our self-image. It can't be propped up anymore. So aging, sickness, and even death are conducive to our opening. It's vital that we reflect on this and reflect that back to the person who's aging, not in some imposing way, but simply by appreciating it. So the idea... The idea of dying, I I think there's no way really that the conceptual mind can completely wrap itself around this, this mystery and yet something in us is called to participate. The teacher, um, Jan Bays, Jan Chosen Bays writes, if we practice stepping into the unknown moment by moment, hour by hour, year by year, millions of times, then death is just the next step into the unknown. It loses its terror. That's some of what we are doing here. And I invite you to to do it consciously. Like when you're doing your walking meditation, rather than like, oh, thinking about how long you might live, or what, what if that was actually your last step? You know, take some steps as though that process of lifting, moving, placing, as if, as if that was your last step, what would the attention be like? What would the interest be like? If it was your last breath, you might be quite interested. So often it's the idea of dying that is scary, fear of pain, fear of the body, not performing well, and... Um, Death will happen for each of us in an in a ordinary moment of life. 
not unlike, in a certain sense, not unlike this moment of life. And the process of dying will take place in the present moment. And death awareness practice can begin to touch that place, that possibility of letting go, which is the third noble truth, that possibility of, of um, the letting go that comes with a deep, deep understanding of impermanence. And it's really because of impermanence that we, that we value this life so much. If you would live forever, it, w- it would be so different. So... It's really the idea, I think, of death that we're most afraid of. The recollection can be really such a, such a beneficial practice. My mother was a teacher, a school teacher. She taught elementary school science. And she didn't consider herself a spiritual person. And in the last months of her life, she got really interested in Thich Nhat Hanh and Pema Chodron. She called me one day and she said, Erin, my doctor has been telling me for months to do mindfulness. And she said, I realize you could help me with that. <laughs> it's just so funny. I didn't want to like press it on her. And so she, she said, he keeps telling me to listen to these meditations. Would you record some meditations for me? And I did. And it was very, it was very sweet. It helped her. And um, in, her, in her dying process, what struck me above all else was that uh, she didn't utter an unkind word. She went through a lot. She didn't utter an unkind word. And when I talk about the karmic momentum, there was some karmic momentum in her of um, metta and generosity. And uh, in a classic North Dakota style. She said all these things when she was, you know, in and out of consciousness. She, it was fall and she said, she said, just like leaves falling. She said, is the fridge all cleaned out? Is the car all packed? Are we wrapping up here? Are we good to go then? She said, I I feel like I'm going on an exotic trip and I don't know where. And she would would say, hello, hello, and said, mom, um, what's what's happening? Oh, they're calling me. Who's calling you? Oh, new friends. New friends are calling me. And, um, And then she burst out one time. She said, I said, mom, who, who are they? She said, make new friends, keep the, gold, keep the old, one is silver, the other is gold. Boom. She, <laughs> it's this campfire song that she had sung when she was a kid. Like, make new friends, keep the old, and she was um, being called by her new friends. And so, I, I just... Uh, yeah, invite you as part of your practice to consider, you know, just the 32 parts of the body, the elements, the re- death recollection. Again, not as a project to be working on or thinking about, but just a, a piece to drop in. Notice if it brightens your mind. Notice if it brings uh, more interest. Um, 
I'll just end with a few words by the great poet Mary Oliver. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. And that's really what we're practicing here. So we'll take a few moments of quiet together. Thank you for your uh, openness and attention tonight.